In the book of Genesis, we read that God created mankind. He made them male and female. And after he created the first man and the first woman, he brought them together in a relationship because our God is a relational God. And that first man and woman came together and God created marriage as a foundational relationship. And then he blessed them with children. And God created the parent-child relationship. And over time, as humanity grew, other relationships developed, friends and neighbors and coworkers and extended family. And God cares about all of our relationships, but he particularly cares about the foundational relationships within the home. And why is that? It's because when we live together within a household, there is a special intimacy to life that we do not experience anywhere else. And because of that unique intimacy, the household is a place where character can be molded and shaped in profound ways. The household is a place where the seeds of faith can be planted and they can flourish. And for this reason, as Paul writes this letter to the believers living in the ancient city of Ephesus, he's addressing the importance of household relationships. As we saw last week, he began with marriage, that foundational family unit, and now he turns his attention to other relationships in the home. And in chapter 6, verse 1, he's going to begin with some timeless principles that lead to richer parent-child relationships. Let's take a look at Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And now notice the next part's a quote. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. That it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Four short verses, but there is a wealth of information for us to glean from this. You know, raising kids is an interesting thing. Years ago, a friend of mine said, before I had children, excuse me, before I got married and had children, I had three very specific theories about the proper way to raise kids. And he says, now that I'm married and now that I'm a parent, I have three children and zero theories. And I think there's some truth to that because it's really easy to be an expert on parenting until you have kids. It's just not as easy as we might think. And that's why whenever someone becomes a parent, we need to open ourselves up to help from our Creator. And in these few verses, God gives us some vital principles that we can use to build healthy relationships between parents and children. Now, as I mentioned last week, the Apostle Paul is writing here in the form of a household code, which was a common teaching device in the ancient world. Greek philosophers used household codes to to establish moral and social and cultural standards for all of the relationships that existed within a home. And Paul does something very strategic. He takes that very familiar teaching tool, familiar to that ancient culture, And he uses it to introduce some dramatically new ideas about relationships within a Jesus-centered 
household. He started that household code in the the last few verses of Ephesians 5 where he described God's design for the relationship between husbands and wives. When we explored that passage last Sunday, we learned that God wants us to approach our marriages primarily as spiritual relationships. That's the foundation. And in the same way, Paul now says that we need to keep God at the center of the parent-child relationship. That's why Paul instructs children to obey their parents in the Lord. He wants kids to know that obedience is a spiritual act and children should choose to honor and obey mom and dad as a sign of their desire to follow Jesus. Obedience is a way for children to honor their parents and to honor God. And this principle of childhood obedience to parents is so foundational to family life that it's part of the Ten Commandments. And most of those commandments simply state things that we should do and should not do. Don't lie. Don't steal. Remember the Sabbath. Things like that. But the command for children to honor parents is unique because as Paul notes here in our passage, this commandment comes with a promise. The promise of a fruitful life. And so children who choose to honor and obey their parents are setting a healthy moral and spiritual foundation for their own well-being throughout their lives. Honor your mom and dad. Obey them, and it will go well with you. Conversely, children who settle into a pattern of rebellion usually will have a hard time overcoming that attitude as they move into adulthood. And what they unwittingly do is they undermine their own ability to enjoy a rich and fruitful life because they're not humble. They're arrogant and self-centered and rebellious. Now, there's one other thing about this command that God gives to kids, and, and I don't know about you, but I've always been struck by the fact that God commands kids to honor their parents. But he doesn't say, love your parents. And I once was talking with a Jewish friend of mine, and he shared an interesting insight. He said that ancient Jewish rabbis taught that God deliberately did this because the parent-child relationship can be incredibly challenging, and kids can grow up with all sorts of reasons not to love mom and dad. However, even if we don't love our parents, we still can choose to honor them the God-given role they play in our lives. I think there's a lot of truth in that. Now, by the way, Paul obviously is writing these words not to infants. He's writing them to children old enough to have an understanding of what he's talking about. Children old enough to understand not just right and wrong, but to understand the concept of obedience. He wants kids to know that from the moment that they're old enough to think and reason, obedience is something they can choose to offer to dad and mom. 
So Paul is putting some responsibility on the children to make the godly choice to, to be an obedient son or daughter. In other words, kids, as you grow up, don't think just about yourself and your own selfish wants. Think about how to properly respond to your parents with honor and obedience as a sign of your respect for God. And here's the point. Childhood obedience is a choice. And it's an easier choice for kids to make when we take our eyes off ourselves and recognize that God asks us to respect our parents. And parents are worthy of respect because they're never perfect. But because of their life experience, the fact is they do know a thing or two that's good for us when we're kids. There's a classic quote that's attributed to Mark Twain. He writes, when I was a boy of 14, my father was so ignorant I could hardly stand to have the old guy around. But when I got to be 21, I was astonished at how much he'd learned in seven years. (laughs) I love that quote. And there's no proof that Twain ever said it. It may be a bit apocryphal, but I think that quote rings true. And I've lived the reality of that, both as a teenager who at times thought my parents were blithering idiots, and also as a parent whose children over time appreciated me more and more as I moved into adulthood. Because they realized that even with my flaws, I had something to offer them. So children, children should listen to their parents and honor their parents and obey their parents. And parents should think about what their children need most. And Paul gives us a clue here when he writes in verse 4 that fathers should not provoke their children. And we need to be careful how we interpret that passage because you and I as parents, we can do all sorts of things that exasperate and frustrate and anger and provoke our kids. And it occurs to me that in some cases, that actually might be good. (laughs) Because if we're provoking them in certain cases, it means we're not indulging their wants and their childish whims. And you see, what Paul is actually talking about here is provoking and exasperating kids as it relates to training and instruction and discipline. Which then points back to us in the way that we live out our faith. And so, for example, as parents, are we consistent? Does our walk match our talk? Our children, they don't just listen to what we say, they watch how we live. And oh boy, was my son good at that. (laughs) And pointing things out when I was inconsistent. And our children will understand if we're flawed and we make mistakes and admit them and apologize. But children will not understand if we're hypocrites. That will truly provoke a child. 
And no child likes discipline, but kids do understand discipline if it's consistently applied. And so as Christian parents, we need to strive for a balanced approach with discipline that is consistent and fair. And if we're petty, or we respond to children out of anger or our models of inconsistency, then it's likely we will exasperate our children and provoke them to anger. And here's what I found. When we're inconsistent in the way that we live out our faith, our kids will not only be angry toward us, they'll be angry toward God. Because they'll conclude that being a person of faith really doesn't make much difference in the way you live your life. And so what kids need most are moms and dads who are striving to love Jesus and to follow him. And we must recognize this is not something we can do entirely on our own. One of the best ways to follow Paul's advice and raise children in the instruction of the Lord is to live it out in the home and then to also consistently participate in the life of the faith community. As we've seen throughout this letter to Ephesians, God has placed us in this community called the church to help us experience a richer and fuller life. And we all need the strength and encouragement that comes from living out our faith together. And we need to surround our kids and our grandkids with other godly and influential adults who can help reinforce what we're trying to do in the home. So make the choice to be a regular participant here each Sunday. Come with a sense of expectation, ready to meet God and interact with his people and let other adults speak wisdom into the life of the kids in your household. Be a model of faithfulness and consistency for your family. And over time that will pay huge dividends and your household and your kids will flourish. Now there's an interesting cultural thing at play here in this passage and we see it in verse four when Paul speaks directly to dads and says, fathers I want you to raise your kids in the training and instruction of the Lord. And we might think, well why doesn't Paul mention moms? Here's what we need to understand, he's not actually excluding moms. What he's doing is he's drawing dads more closely into the family picture. You see, in the typical first century home, men usually delegated and in fact often washed their hands of child rearing. They gave that responsibility to their wives and they often were very aloof figures to their kids. They weren't really involved, they just barked orders and demanded obedience. And Paul writes these words because he wants to change that dynamic in the home. And just as he previously exhorted husbands to be the spiritual leaders in the marital relationship, he now exhorts dads to be the spiritual leader in the parental relationship. And why is that? Because an earthly father can serve as a model for the heavenly father. Even an imperfect dad, even an unbelieving dad can help pave the way for his children to become people of faith. And I'm living proof of that. 
I grew up in a wonderful, loving household. It was a home without faith. My dad wasn't a believer, but he was a good man. And you know what's fascinating about biblical truth? Biblical truth works whether you know where you get it from or not. Because <laughs> God's wisdom is God's wisdom. And without even knowing it, a whole lot of my dad's life was based on living out biblical principles. And so when I went to church at age 17 and heard the message of Jesus Christ clearly for the very first time and I learned that there was this heavenly father, the message made sense to me because of the example of my own dad. I understood what it meant to have a father who loved for me and cared for me and had my best interests at heart, who loved me unconditionally. I understood what it was to have a heavenly father who disciplined me not out of anger but out of love so that my behavior could be corrected and I could grow without even being aware of it. <laughs> my dad raised me to become a follower of Jesus Christ. Here's the point. Fathers have a huge role to play in the lives of their children. And one of the tragic things that's happening in our culture is our culture continually is trying to marginalize the role of men in general and the role of fathers in particular. Fatherhood is vital for the health of our children. And Christian men need to ask God to help them be good and godly fathers. And this doesn't negate in any way the importance of moms. Kids need godly mothers just as they need godly fathers. Godly fathers, godly mothers, striving together to pour God's wisdom into the lives of their kids. But then what happens if you're a single parent? If you're in that situation, I want to encourage you to make sure your kids get time around other godly adults. If you're a single mom, find some trustworthy men that can be positive male role models for your kids. If you're a single dad, find some trustworthy women who can be positive female role models for your kids. These might be teachers or coaches or other family members. It might be people in the church. I had the privilege once years ago of stepping into that kind of role with a single mom in our neighborhood where I became a bit of a surrogate dad to her daughters and her son, filling in a little bit of that gap so that that family could have not just a loving and godly mom but the influence of a man who loved Jesus Christ. And so if you're a single parent, let other followers of Jesus come alongside you and your children to help fill the void and reinforce what you're trying to do in your home. And God's perfect plan is for there to be a mom and dad in the home. But when there's only one parent, whether you're a single mom or a single dad, trust that God can give you the ability to raise your kids and pass on your faith. And never forget that the church community is here to walk by your side. To support you, to encourage you, to pray for you, and help reinforce the wisdom and truth that you want to bring in your home, into your home. And this is just as true for those of us who are 
grandparents and aunts and uncles as it is for moms and dads. If we have young people in our families, we can be sources of God's light and truth and speak that into their lives so that kids can grow up and come to the point where they make the decision to become a follower of Jesus. And the most important thing to remember is that family relationships ultimately are spiritual relationships. And what Paul wants the church to know is that striving to be a good child, a godly child, is an expression of faith. Striving to be a good parent is an expression of faith. Parents and kids don't need to be perfect and we should not give up on ourselves and beat ourselves up with guilt when we make mistakes. With God's help, we can be good enough parents and children. And as we follow Jesus, we can have a family life that increasingly is rich and rewarding. Excuse me. I want to wrap up this section with two practical examples about how we as parents can be more effective spiritual leaders in the home. These are really basic, but they're really easy to neglect. Here's number one. Talk with your kids about God and faith. When our children were young, we'd come home from church on Sunday morning, we'd have a family meal together, and during that meal, we would go around the table, and the kids would share something that they learned in Sunday school that morning. Julie and I would share something that we learned in the sermon that morning. And we would all talk about one simple thing we could do in the week ahead to try and live out what we had learned. And then during the week, we'd have some conversations about that. How are we doing? Have we actually taken hold of the God's truth? Are we starting to live it out in our life and become more faithful followers of Jesus? That kind of thing doesn't take long and it sets a very healthy pattern for family life. It creates an environment of ongoing spiritual conversations with our kids. Number two, pray with your kids. When our kids come to us with hurts and frustrations, we need to do more than just give them good parental advice. We can take a minute and pray with them. And what we're doing is we're teaching them to bring their concerns to God. If our kids only ever pray in church, or maybe when we give thanks over a meal, you know what's going to happen? They're going to start to see their faith as very compartmentalized. Oh, we do the religious thing over here. That's when we do the spiritual stuff. But if something comes up during the day, problem, concern, a hurt, an issue, and we just say, hey, let's talk about that. Here's some parental advice. And let's take just you know, 30 seconds and pray about that and give that over to God. Those simple prayers, oh, they teach our kids volumes. And they let our kids know that God is interested in the concerns and affairs and details of their daily lives. And once again, those of us who are grandparents, aunts and uncles, we might not have the young kids living with us in the household, but if we have an opportunity to step into their lives, we can do those same kinds of simple things to reinforce what faith looks like on a day-in, day-out basis. I love it when I interact 
with my granddaughters and my grandsons. And from time to time, they'll share something about a problem. And as we know, when you're six, the problems aren't big, but they're sure big to the six-year-old. <laughs> but just to take a minute, put your arm around them and say, hey, let's take that concern you have to God and ask God to be at work. Because the Heavenly Father loves you and He cares about that need. Oh, we are teaching so much to our children in those moments. Four simple verses we've just covered, but oh my goodness, the timeless truths here are powerful. And when we embrace them and live them out, then over time what we see increasingly is richer and richer parent-child relationships. And that's what God wants for every household. Well, having addressed that, Paul's now going to turn his attention to another relationship that is not typical at all for us, but was very common in the majority of the households in the ancient Middle East. And it's the relationship between a servant and an overseer. Let's take a look. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. This passage has been a source of great confusion and misunderstanding over many, many generations. And I think for us to properly grasp it, we need to realize that the same word can actually mean different things in different languages. And here's a couple of examples. Think about the word burro, B-U-R-R-O. In Spanish, that word means donkey. You know what it means in Italian? Butter. <laughs> Same word, two radically different meanings. Our English word gift, when you take that word into German, it means poison. And in Swedish, it means married. Same word, very different meanings. Football in America is not football in the rest of the world, right? What we call soccer is what the rest of the world calls football. And I bring this up because the word translated bondservant here in verse 5, as we just read, in most Bible translations, it's translated as the word slave. And slave is a loaded word in our culture, yet it doesn't mean what we think it means here in this Bible passage. And we hear that word slave and we interpret it through the lens of our own nation's sad history of slavery. But the culture of slavery and servanthood in the ancient Middle East was vastly different than anything we ever experienced here in America. So I believe there's at least four things that we need to know if we want to properly understand what Paul's saying here. First, in the ancient Middle East, there were many different kinds of slaves and servants. 
Since Paul is offering this advice here as part of a household code, then we know that he specifically is addressing people who serve in the home. So he's not writing about people like galley slaves, those men who were chained and who rode the Roman warships. He's not talking about slaves condemned to hard labor who lived in chains and were pressed into involuntary servitude. Those kinds of people usually were convicts or prison of war, and they lived in harsh and hostile environments. One historian said, the life of those kinds of slaves it was a life that was nasty, brutish, and short. And sadly, the lives of those kinds of slaves would be the ones most akin to the kind of slavery we had in America before the Civil War. Yet we need to understand that Paul is not writing about those kinds of people, and he never writes anywhere about those kinds of slaves. And this leads to the second point. The relationship of a household slave to a master was more like an indentured servant than a slave. And so the Bible translation we use, the ESV, does a great service by translating the, this word not as slave, but as bond servant. Now, in that first century world, being a bondservant wasn't always easy. And such a person was not entirely free. But it was not a life lived in shackles and chains. In fact, for the majority of bondservants, this was a temporary season in life. And more than half of all the bondservants in the Roman Empire were free by the age of of 30. It was extremely rare for anyone to spend their entire life as a bondservant. And in fact, it was really quite common for young people, particularly young foreigners, usually men, they would sell themselves into the role of a bondservant for a specified period of time. And why did they do that? Because by becoming a bondservant to a Roman citizen and serving out your term faithfully, you could acquire the benefits and privileges of Roman citizenship. And here's what else is interesting. It was a way to gain entrance into society. Because listen to this, bondservants were treated as being of the exact same social class as their masters. Plus, being a bondservant often meant you could learn a trade that you then could use to support yourself once you obtained your freedom. And even while you were a bondservant, you enjoyed all kinds of freedoms that slaves in chains did not enjoy. Bondservants could earn money and save it up. Bondservants could buy and sell property. Bondservants could have their own bondservants working for them. And some bondservants actually lived in separate lodgings and then just reported to their master's home for work every day. So yes, it was a life of service. It was a life with some definite limitations. But it was not a degrading and brutal life of hard labor without rewards. And now here's the third thing. Paul is writing to Christians. So he's describing how masters 
and bondservants should respond to each other in new ways because Jesus now is at the center of their relationship. Jesus needs to define how they interact with each other. And Paul is making the powerful point that becoming a follower of Jesus may not always change our circumstances, but it should dramatically transform our relationships. And we find an example of this in the little New Testament book of Philemon. Philemon was a Christian whose bondservant had run away. And Paul writes to Philemon and says, I want you to take your servant back with grace and forgiveness. Don't treat him harshly. Excuse me, treat him as a brother in Christ. What a radical statement in that ancient culture. An overseer treating a bondservant as a brother in Christ. It's a radical restructuring of human relationships. Relationships not based on hierarchy, but relationships based on mutual faith and mutual love for Jesus Christ. And this leads to the fourth point, which I think is really powerful. Because bondservants were the social equals of their overseers, they were in fact taken into all levels of society. And they were treated as equals in the church. And it wasn't unusual for an overseer to bring his bondservant to church. Here's this master, he's a follower of Jesus. He wants this loyal bondservant to become a follower of Jesus. So the bondservant comes to church with him and guess what? Makes a profession of faith and gets baptized, becomes a follower of Christ. Well then, guess what? He's a member of the church. And members of the church are supposed to discover and use their spiritual gifts because God gives gifts to every one of us. We talked about that a few weeks ago. And so what if you're a bondservant and you have the gift of teaching and your master doesn't. And so in more than one ancient church, you had this kind of scenario taking place. Master and bondservant come to church together and then the master sits down while the bondservant teaches the church from the scriptures. Think about the dynamics of that. I'm your overseer, and during the week, I get to tell you what to do, but on Sunday, then I sit at your feet, and I learn from you as you instruct me in the truth of God, because you have the spiritual gift of teaching. Wow. Transforming relationships. That's what God does. And when we think of that kind of dynamic at play, it's not at all like our typical understanding of slave-master relationships. Bond servants enjoyed a level of independence that a slave never would experience. And yet that servant, while he was a bond servant, an indentured servant, he still needed to owe allegiance to his master, to his overseer. And so Paul says, bond servants and masters honor God. And the servant does it by practicing obedience, while the master does it by overseeing his servant with graciousness. Servants and masters who follow those principles will experience much richer 
and more fruitful relationships. Now, fortunately, the institutions of slavery and indentured servitude no longer exist in this country. And so this advice doesn't apply directly to our lives. And as a result, it's fairly common for Bible teachers to say, well, how can we get something out of this? Well, let's apply these principles to our relationships in the workplace. Well, that's obviously going beyond Paul's original intent because he's focused exclusively on the household. And yet it's true that these principles certainly can have some impact and value in the way that we approach our work. Employees should respect their bosses. And bosses should treat their employees with dignity. Work is hard, and work at times can be drudgery. But it takes on a higher meaning when we work in a way that serves others and honors God. Employers and employees who keep their eyes on Jesus can transform a workplace. And I've seen it happen more than once. But back to the home for just a minute. Now these principles that Paul spells out here can apply to all sorts of relationships we might have within our own households. Because the fact is, most of us don't live in the stereotypical home. Mom, dad, and 2.3 kids, right? And even if we have that kind of home, it's only for a particular season of life. But Paul's household advice can apply in all different kinds of seasons of life and, and, and to all kinds of different relationships that we might have within the home. Maybe you've got a tenant living with you. Maybe you're in a situation where your aged parents have moved in with you and you're caring for them. Maybe your adult children have moved back in with you for a season. If any of those kinds of things are going on in our households, it can be so beneficial to take time to read what Paul's written here and to see how his godly advice might shape those particular household relationships. Because regardless of who is living under our roof, God wants each one of his children to experience a flourishing household. Now, we need to recognize that Paul is setting a very high standard here in this passage. And the reality is that all of us at times will fall short. And when we fall short because of our own failings, it can hurt. And sometimes we might carry wounds in our heart and our soul because of things we wish we would have done or not done. Sometimes it might be other people in the home who fall short and their failings can hurt us. And sometimes we carry wounds in our heart and soul because of things that others have done or not done. Well, we have this great privilege of being children of a heavenly father. We're in a spiritual family. 
Psalm 68.5 says that God is a father to the fatherless and a defender of widows. God watches over us and he wants to comfort us when we're hurting because of failures we might have experienced in our families. And he wants us to be ready as a church family to come alongside those who might be hurting and struggling because of whatever might have happened in their family. And here's what we need to understand. Wherever we might find ourselves in our household relationships today, God wants to meet us there in that moment. And if things are going well for you and your household, God wants you to continue to maintain a strong, vibrant, Jesus-centered home where Christ is at the center of those relationships. God wants you to hold on to the principles that Paul lays out here and continually look for fresh ways to apply them. And if you're struggling in your home, then ask God for wisdom and discernment. Say, God, how can I take these particular principles and apply them into my household so that I can make a fresh start? Be intentional about bringing some new spiritual practices into the relationships within your home. Because when we put Jesus at the center of our households, then we and everyone else living under our roof can and will flourish. And that's what the Heavenly Father wants for all of his children. Let's pray. And Father, we do thank you for the privilege of being your children. And thank you, Father, that we're not alone in this, that we have a church family and we get to walk through life together so we can encourage each other and pray for each other and support each other in the ups and downs of life. And this morning we pray for our families and our households in whatever shape they might be and whatever the kinds of relationships we might have living under our roofs. And Father, we know that there are some who are hurting because there's been family wounding. And as the scripture says, we weep with those who weep and we mourn with those who mourn. And we pray that your spirit would lift them up and bind those wounds and help them to press on. And Father, there's some here whose households are flourishing and we rejoice with them. And we pray that that would continue. And I pray that you would take these words from the scriptures, these words that the Holy Spirit inspired the Apostle Paul to write, please take those words and sear them into our minds and our hearts and our souls so we can live them out and so that our families, our households will flourish and be all that you want them to be. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.